Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Anti-Dystopians. To kick off our new season, we decided to zero in on one of the regions that comes up a lot in this podcast, Southeast Asia. From Facebook's relationship with the junta in Myanmar to Huawei's plans for 5G digital infrastructure, our guests Kira Jasper and Andreika Nataligawa explain the digital landscape of Southeast Asia. So hi, both of you. Thanks so much for being on here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks thanks for having us. Um, so maybe we could start a little bit um, with you guys telling us a bit about like who you are, your background, and then maybe we could start with you guys both wrote or co-authored an article at CSIS um, about digital media, essentially the state of the landscape in Southeast Asia. So maybe we could start with a little bit of background on the region, just so our listeners get a sense um, of sort of what's going on. Sure, I'll, I'll start. So my name is Andreka. I am currently a research assistant at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, working with their Southeast Asia program. I'm also currently a graduate student at Georgetown University, studying uh, Asian studies. Um, sort of broad research focus includes uh, you know, Southeast Asia generally as a region, uh, U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, but also increasingly sort of the nexus between uh, digital technologies and national security, and that encompasses everything from um, you know, uh, freedom of speech and sort of human rights issues, which we'll be talking about today, but also sort of the commercial angle and sort of, uh, you know, what impacts digital technologies might have on the economies of Southeast Asia moving forward. Uh, again, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and my name is Kira Jasper. I'm a student at Stanford University studying history, human rights, and Southeast Asia. I was formerly an intern at CSIS in the Southeast Asia program um, and have experience working on issues of judicial reform and human rights in Indonesia specifically, um, but was very grateful during my time at CSIS to sort of expand my research focus more broadly throughout the region um, and worked a bit with Andreka on studying digital technologies and digital policy in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so why don't we get started a bit with, you know, you talked about this in your article, but sort of what what is the scope or the landscape of social media use in, in Southeast Asia? Yeah, sort of happy to start off with that. You know, I think just as a table setter, you know, when we're talking Southeast Asia, we're primarily talking about the 10 countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or, or ASEAN. So countries like Singapore, Brunei, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, this is a region that is growing very fast in terms of uh, its population, you know, their economies. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a region of growing opportunity when it comes to digital technologies. Uh, you know, the region is home to over 600 million internet users as of I believe, last year, and social media users are about, you know, 70% of that. Um, so just when you look at the numbers, the raw numbers, um, it's a very interconnected, very digital population, right? And, you know, if you look at the statistics, uh, four of the 10 countries that have the highest number of Facebook users in the world are in Southeast Asia. Um, so again, when we're talking about, um this region, uh, you know, it's one that is increasingly connected, one that is increasingly digital, and one where social media and digital technologies is playing an increasingly central part in, in daily life. 
To add on to that, in addition to the high number of individuals that are using social media, a lot of ASEAN countries have also implemented and passed anti-fake news measures um, to sort of combat or in response to the rise of digital uh, or to of internet use. So almost every ASEAN country, if they're not sort of considered to be a bit more authoritarian to begin with, they've passed a lot of anti-fake news measures, which have been have been used in order to clamp down on free speech. Um, and I think we're going to dive into some of those case studies later into the conversation. But I think that's important to know that this response from the government level has been um, sort of weaponized in a way that is not always in protection of the free speech that most of these countries have incorporated through international law and domestic laws um, of preserving, such as freedom of expression, freedom of speech, et cetera. Um, it's also important to know that almost every country, and we can dive into this a little bit later, but almost every country's top social media platform that they use is Facebook. And that's followed by Instagram, by Twitter, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp. Um, and I think that's important to sort of think about at the get-go that a lot of the social media companies that are dominant in these region, in the region are Western, and it's all the same in almost all of them. And so there's not like a WeChat for Southeast Asia. There's not really a local news um, social media or a, a local social media platform in any one of these countries except Vietnam, but that one doesn't even have the same usage as Facebook. So I guess that's important also to uh, clarify from the start that when we talk about um, content being posted online, it's being posted on these Western social media platforms. Yeah, and I think just to add on to, to Kira's point, I do just want to emphasize and reiterate the degree to which these technologies have become integrated into daily life. Uh, when you look at the platforms like, like Instagram, for instance, um, you know, Instagram is deeply tied to the rise of you know, small and medium-sized enterprises, local businesses in countries like Indonesia, right? And so uh, it's not just, uh, you know, social media and the way that we think about it in terms of like, uh, sharing updates on my life or sharing photos of my cat, right? It, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. And the second thing I'd add to, to Kira's point about you know, government responses to the rise of social media platforms in this region is that you know, this, this sort of backlash against um, you know, the, the freedoms of speech and freedom of expression and things like that, you know, it's, it's very much a microcosm of what a broader trend that's happening in the region, which is the trend of democratic regression. Right. I think all of the countries in Southeast Asia in the past decade or so have experienced pretty significant backsliding in terms of the status of the democracy. Um, and so you're seeing uh, all around uh, you know, severe curtailments of civil liberties, of democratic institutions, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And you know, what we're seeing in the digital space is part of that broader picture. Just very quickly, you guys have you know, mentioned Facebook is in, and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook as the two um, kind of top um, apps or companies used. Um, what's, what is behind, like what's after Facebook and Instagram? Is it Twitter or is it something else? Do you know? So if you consider YouTube to be a social media platform, which is still in debate, um, it's also very high in um, almost all of the Southeast Asian countries. WhatsApp, which is also owned by Facebook is also very high. And Twitter and Tumblr and Pinterest, uh, which I guess if you consider Pinterest also to be a social media company, are on the list, but 
compared to Facebook penetration, very minimal. It's, you'll find that a lot of people, especially a lot of youth, will have multiple social media accounts, like seven to eight, that they'll check every day. Um, and it's also interesting, I guess, anecdotally, I can speak to Indonesia, where it's sort of surprising to see Facebook at the top, because a lot of young people will use Instagram more than Facebook, but they'll still have a Facebook account. And so I think the numbers also are a bit, um, not necessarily skewed, but they sort of tell a picture that's hard to know uh, exactly how much influence each is now having, but it's definitely going to be different based on country, based on age group, um, and based on, I guess, usage amount. The only other countries that, or only other companies that have any sort of foothold is Vcontacte, which is like a Russian messaging platform, and Line, which is a Japanese platform, and that's it. But in every single Southeast Asian country, including East Timor, Facebook is by far the most popular. Well, one thing I'd add, though, is, um, you know, this is, I think, anecdotal from, from my end. But one thing we observed uh, in the early days of the coup in Myanmar uh, was I, I just recall seeing a massive increase in the number of like interactions I was getting from uh, Twitter accounts that were based in, in Myanmar. Um, as though, you know, I think this was in sort of the early stages where there were lots of, uh, you know, the junta was taking action against Facebook. And uh, from what I recall, from what I've seen, uh, there ended up being sort of like a mass exodus of users from Facebook migrating over to Twitter and using that as the platform of choice uh, in terms of, uh, you know, communicating uh, their messages to the world. And so, um, you know, while, while Facebook and sort of similar platforms might be at the top of the list, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asians are nothing if not resourceful in terms of, you know, finding the platforms that suits their needs. So it's, it's pliable, I'd say. So, so jumping off those, those points, I wonder, you know, in the Western context, particularly in the US, but even, even a little bit in Europe, right, the, the way that the free speech and social media issue is framed is often, you know, they call up, you know, Congress calls up Mark Zuckerberg to testify and he says, you know, yes, 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 such and such different disinformation is on the platform. Yes, I understand. But like, we we don't want to get involved in free speech. So this question around like fake news, disinformation, free speech, the, you know, the right to free expression, and whether one, the state should get involved, and two, a corporation should get involved. So I wonder, like, given like a couple of different, like, different contextual points that you guys kind of brought up in your comments, how the, the conversation around that changes one as as you mentioned Andreka you know just the backsliding about states wanting to get you know to limit free speech but also Tira as you mentioned the fact that like these are western corporations and so it it's sometimes kind of seems like you're in a tough spot when it's like on the one hand right you as a western corporation you should bow to local, you know, to local context. On the other hand, right, then you have context where these like repressive states are asking Western governments to like censor um, individuals. So I wonder like, what is, what is this, what does that conversation look like? Is it, is it, is it different because of those, those um, points or contexts? I guess I can start off by saying that it's, as you said, it's a very tricky situation. And I think that there's a lot of different factors at play that complicate it. I think first, um, I mean, Facebook 
which is, I think, the biggest player in the field, is a business. And even though that they, ha- they have these values, part of their policy that they've cited, as you've mentioned, is that they want to respect local laws. But they're also sort of caught because if they decide not to respect the government's wishes, then sometimes they are faced with retaliation. And when you think about what control these governments can sometimes have over the types of corporations or businesses that are running in their country, sometimes if one company such as Facebook doesn't comply, they could just be replaced. They could, their services could be taken off the server, the servers, and then it's going to be replaced by a company that does comply and perhaps is also limiting freedom of speech. So it's kind of, they're caught in a catch 22. Um, I think a very illustrated example or illustrative example is Facebook in Vietnam. So um, Facebook, as we mentioned, has the largest presence of a social media company in Vietnam. And they and Viet, the Vietnamese government asked Facebook to take off a lot of different users that they felt were violating um, or threatening national security. And initially, Facebook decided that they didn't want to or they didn't want to censor comments or content. And afterwards, the, the Vietnamese government basically took Facebook down for a few, few days or a few weeks. Um, and ultimately, Facebook when they were uh, rebooted back to the server, decided to comply. And I think that's an example of um, how these companies, while they might not, while they might have their own values, sometimes are caught in a, caught 20, in a catch-22 where they, they basically have to follow um, whatever the government's orders are. Um, on the other hand, I guess as well, some of the responsibility falls to the ways that these different laws of freedom of expression have translated onto the um, onto the digital sphere. So when we look at Indonesia, for example, there are free speech laws for how uh, content or for to protect free speech offline, but those don't always translate to online. And a reason that a lot of governments give is that the scale or the, the um, scope of the impact is much greater online. And so if fake news or defamation is posted online, it can reach a lot more people, it can be a lot more harmful, and the criminal penalty should be a lot more, and that should be regulated a lot harsher. So that, I think, that is a, a reason that a lot of um, countries will have differing um, penalties if the content is posted online, even though it's very different and sometimes contrasting to whatever the criminal code will say about a certain um, a certain violation. And I think that these are interesting questions to think about because, as we sort of mentioned earlier, social media has taken over people's lives. It, it, I mean, it's not that it's taken over people's lives in a negative sense, but it's integrated into people's lives so much that because the amount of times people spend online is so much, like in Southeast Asia, I think it's almost seven to eight hours a day people are online. So if people are able to see posts so much more frequently, and if people's speech spread so widely, I think that's just a question that is not just social media companies having to grapple with, but governments are having to grapple with as well to understand how the protection of rights and how just the environment in general has changed. I think, you know, responding to sort of your initial question about the, you know, the interplay between how, you know, how the state should respond and how companies should respond, what their role is in all of this, 
I mean, that's a big question. That's a very sort of high level philosophical question. And, and we could talk about that all day, really. But I think, you know, there, there's no easy answer. But I think it's important to recognize that, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you sort of spoke about, you know, the US context, right? Because what we're seeing in, you know, how Facebook operates here in the United States and how Facebook operates in other countries, um, you know, it, it's all part of the same picture, right? And so I think it, it's not really helpful to, to sort of silo, um, you know, these issues separately because they are part of one continuum. That being said, there's no easy sort of one-size-fits-all response to, to what that relationship between the state and um, these private corporations should look like. It's really contextual. Um, I think, you know, my hope is that, uh, you know, we have Western companies operating in Southeast Asia and sort of American companies specifically, that they would bring with them the value set that is consistent with uh, you know, some of the values that we hold here in the United States, right, in terms of how we conceptualize uh, freedom of expression, how we conceptualize the importance of, of democratic values, right? And so that's, I think, you know, what we would hope to see. And obviously, the reality is much more complicated, I think, as Kira noted, when, you know, these companies uh, come up against um, some of these restrictions that are in some ways antithetical to, to, to these values. I do want to make the point that when we're talking about restrictions on um, content on social media platforms that, you know, these these restrictions are not necessarily targeted at specific companies from specific countries. Um, you know, it's not like, uh, uh, you know, these restrictions are being placed solely on Instagram or placed solely on Facebook. It, it's, it's, it's much more broad than that. You know, this is just the operating environment. And the same restrictions apply to, to most, if not all companies that work in this space, whether they be from Japan, from, from, from Indonesia, from China, et cetera. Um, but what's unique about um, sort of Western companies specifically is exactly sort of the, the values thing that I've been talking about, right? And how they respond to um, <clears throat> uh, takedown requests and, and things like that. So there's a different sort of um, pathway that these, these companies have developed over time than uh, companies uh, from other countries that might have other sort of value systems. Um, but you, you really do, I just want to, again, emphasize the point that Kira made about, you know, there's a trade-off in terms of, you know, these are private companies uh, for whom, uh, you know, the bottom line is really sort of the motivating factor, right, in terms of, of what, they're, what they're doing. And oftentimes, you know, they'll be placed in very difficult situations in terms of, uh, you know, upholding the values that they they hold, but also uh, you know, making decisions that are beneficial for for uh, companies themselves. And one thing I, I, I go back to right now, one ongoing conversation, not specific to social media, but is the, the telecommunications firm Telenor um, that recently pulled out of Myanmar, uh, partially because the operating environment was becoming incredibly restrictive. My understanding is that the junta was um, you know, after the, the coup in February was seeking uh, metadata related to, to telephone calls and all sorts of information that, uh, you know, could potentially put a lot of people at risk when it comes to uh, protesters, members of the civil disobedience movement, and Telenor ended up pulling out, or they're, they're, they're attempting to, to, to make moves to pulling out of the country entirely, which is, you know, a, a significant decision that will have uh, you know, real impact on, on their business operations. But these are the choices that these sorts of companies are being forced to make. Um, and so it's a, it's, it's a complicated picture to say the least.
Yeah, I actually wanted to ask about that since you since you brought that up um, about Myanmar. So so obviously, right, like Facebook's role in Myanmar is highly, highly controversial. There's a UN report as well as, you know, then they commissioned a, a, a BSR report on their human rights impact implicating Facebook and uh, genocide of Rohingya. And then, but as you pointed out, then during, you know, the military coup, um, the new regime is had this sort of complicated cat and mouse relationship with Facebook because as you mentioned before right it's so integrated not just into like people's communications but into the economy and so during government shutdowns you know they they kind of had to to tiptoe around they couldn't completely shut it down entirely even though it was being used as a communication tool because of the impact on the economy so I wondered what sort of you know in the U.S. context again right like when we talk about like ooh, what's the U.S. government going to do to Facebook? It's never really questioned that the government, the U.S. government, could do it if they wanted, right? Like the U.S. government has the power to shut down Facebook tomorrow if they wanted, right? Um, even though you know they they won't do that. Um, so I wonder then, kind kind of going both, you know, because your your answer before shows that there's a power dynamic both ways. Like, what given that it you know Facebook is a Western and a multinational com- company, what what kind of powers do um, like both the state have in terms of like compelling Facebook to do what it wants beyond just, you know, throwing it out of the country and then kind of what is on the opposite side, the, the corporation, as you as you pointed out, they too could pull out. I mean, if Facebook pulled out of Myanmar, if it decided to do that, it could as well. Google, you know, Google famously pulled out of China. That would also, as you said, have like a really dramatic impact. So what's kind of that what what does the power dynamic back and forth between between the states and the corporations? I mean, I think it's exactly as you put it, right? In terms of uh, you know, local governments have a lot of leverage in terms of you know they're the ones who get to decide sort of the operational environment. Um, you know, the one thing I'd say is that for a lot of Southeast Asian countries um, and Southeast Asian governments specifically, the real sort of end goal here is stability. Right. When you look at a country like Vietnam, you know, stability is sort of you know, political stability, economic stability is the number one priority. And for some governments, you know, that pursuit of stability is incompatible with uh, freedom of expression. Right. That's how that's how some of these governments see it. And so when you understand that that's the, the starting off point for a lot of these governments, you can see how it impacts uh, their relationships with these social media companies. So I'd say that. Um, you know, a lot of the power in this conversation is held by local governments, if only because of the, the wide array of tools that they can use in terms of negotiating their relationships with these companies, uh, whether it be sort of legislative instruments um, or you know, sort of, uh, you know, over above the table sort of measures or things that are a little bit more coercive, right? And so there's a whole sort of toolkit there. On the company's end, I think, um, you know, one thing I'd say is that, again, we, we've repeated uh, quite a number of times just how integrated these technologies are. So I think I would hope that there's growing recognition that, um, you know, it's hard to conceptualize what Southeast Asia would look like without some of these platforms, right? Like, what would Indonesia look like without Instagram? What would Myanmar look like without Facebook? When um, a significant uh, portion of online activity is conducted on these platforms. And so, you know, when we talk about these companies, they actually have a significant amount of leverage. And one thing I'd point to is, 
when you look at a country like Myanmar, right, or in the early days of the, the coup, um, there were frequent internet shutdowns uh, that would take place uh, overnight, right? And so, so in certain hours of the night, uh, the internet uh, connectivity in, in, in the country would be completely shut off. And, and part of this was to sort of deter coordination between uh, members of the civilian, uh, the civil disobedience movement uh, during protests at night and things like that. But, you know, when, when day breaks, uh, they flip the switch back on, you know, the internet comes back. And I think that in a way, I think that's a recognition of this balance that these governments need to have in terms of wanting to exert control, but also understanding that shutting themselves off from these platforms completely would be economic suicide, right? And so there's a delicate balance there. So I think both parties have leverage here, but it's just about how they, how they negotiate that relationship between themselves. So yeah, so we've been talking a lot about Myanmar, but maybe we could take a few other case studies in the region as examples. Um, so perhaps lay much of state laws in Thailand and or you know blasphemy laws in Indonesia. Um, maybe you could explain for our listeners like what are the laws in the state? How have social media companies responded to and or complied with them? Um, and sort of what has been the result in the in the political context um, of this like legislation? I'll, I'll tackle the first part about Thailand. So, you know, when we talk about freedom of expression, freedom of speech in Thailand, uh, you know, the one thing you have to talk about is lay majesty laws. And my understanding is that these laws are rooted in, I think it's Article 112 of the Thailand's Criminal Code, uh, which uh, imposes, uh, you know, penalties on individuals who defame or threaten or sort of insult uh, the king and, and members of the royal family and sort of the, 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 the monarchy as an institution. Um, and I think uh, when you talk about Thailand, again, you know, one thing you have to point out is that the country is currently undergoing uh, pretty significant um, uh, protest movement, sort of pro-democracy uh, protest movement. Uh, and one thing you've seen over the past year has been the use of the lay majesty laws to target uh, specific individuals uh, in the protest movement. When it comes to Thailand, one of the sort of major red lines is, uh, you know, the discussion of the role of the monarchy uh, in the country. And, um, you know, this has been a longstanding sort of taboo that I think some members of the, of the protest movement have you know, started to have some real conversations about. And I think that because of that, uh, you know, these laws have been used as a tool to crack down against this sort of dissent. Um, so I think in the past year or so, you know, you've seen uh, at least about 100 individuals who've been charged uh, under lay majesty laws, which represents a real significant sort of uptick uh, in, in activity. Um, and, you know, it's not just specifically related to the, the protest movements, but you've also seen La Majeste laws imposed in cases of, so recently, a few months back, there was a, um, you know, members of the, the Thai opposition uh, were charged or sort of accused of La Majeste uh, for raising some pretty important questions, I think, about uh, Thailand's vaccination rollout. Um, and so, you know, this is a this is a public health question, right? Uh, and you know, these are important questions that uh, any country should be having during the pandemic. Uh, but uh, you know, they're perceived in, in such a way that um, I think perhaps members of the government uh, didn't like uh, so much. And so, um, you know, in this case, Lai Majesty was used as a tool to sort of tamp down on those questions and, and that sort of discussion. So, you know, the impact of these laws isn't just on um, 
freedom of expression and sort of uh, you know, very important questions about uh, you know, the status of Thailand's you know, de democratic freedoms and things like that, but also public health, right? And you know, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you know, this, is, this is important. Sort of to on, add on to Andreka's comments, um, in Malaysia in particular that I recall, they passed their Anti-Fake News Act in response to a lot of information about COVID um, that was false in that was rising as well. But um, also to what Andreka said, as well as what we're seeing as a general trend in the, re in the region, a lot of these anti-fake news laws are being used um, to clamp down on a lot of free speech and dissent, especially as people are very angry by the ways that governments have handled COVID, not just in Thailand, but around the region um, a few months ago. And I think to date as well, Indonesia has become one of the biggest hotspots of COVID um, cases in the world. And I think the same can be said about almost all Southeast Asian countries at this point. Um, if not currently, then at least they've experienced huge surges and sometimes they just cannot be controlled for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think on to your question, Alina, regarding Indonesia and the ways that its blasphemy laws, as well as its uh, ITE law, which is this internet and uh, or electronic and transactions um, law. It's, it's produced a lot of controversy. And I think, and I've already touched on this before, but I think part of the controversy comes from how to translate crimes that previously were committed offline or what is deemed as a crime offline, such as saying something that's defamatory or saying something that um, would be criminalized normally if you said it offline with this translation online. And something that's really key to point out here, and I think is important to contextualize based on the country, is the element of the law that requires intent, whether it intended to be spread privately or publicly, sort of related to just defamation more broadly. If somebody is tagged in a Facebook post that's containing defamatory content, they can also receive um, more than a year of a prison sentence because of this idea that people could see this um, defamatory content on the person's Facebook page. And that, and so thus he is responsible for spreading this content. Or um, if somebody intended to have a private Facebook message in which they said something negative about somebody else, if that uh, comment is then screenshotted, shared on WhatsApp, via WhatsApp groups with hundreds of people, it spreads. Suddenly a comment that had the intent of only being shared privately became public. There are still um, can be held responsible and, and criminally liable for their actions. And so there's not a good way that law enforcement and that the courts are sort of handling these cases. And I think a big reason why is there's a lot of public pressure, um, especially in cases of blasphemy, where there is this religious aspect, where judges are sort of pressured to give really harsh senten sentences because of the nature of the cases. And I think there's a lack of um, discrimination in how online versus offline speech cases are handled. I will say just generally the usage of Indonesia's ITE law has blossomed or has boomed over the past few years. From about like 2010 to 2015, the ITE law was used about 74 times in order to convict people of crimes. From about 2015 to 2020, the authorities used the ITE law over 230 times um, to convict people of, 
of crimes related to online content. And I think that's that increase is, of course, part of the trend that more people are using the internet. But I think also sort of shows, as Andreka mentioned at the beginning, there's this usage of a lot of online laws in order to um, criminalize people's dissent or actions that the government sees as um, uh, threatening of their power of whatever that is seen. I think a big impact of these laws besides their use um, to sentence people's speech online is that there's an increase in self-censorship as well. It's creating an idea and an environment in which people are afraid to post something online because they don't know how, their, how the content will spread and whether or not the law will actually be properly applied and if they can use mechanisms of the law in order to challenge censorship requests, um, which is actually one of the main criticisms of Indonesia's IDE law, where if a website is taken down for censorship, perhaps there was um, a lot of cases in Indonesia of um, like abortion sites or sex ed sites that were taken down and framed as pornography, which is um, illegal in Indonesia even though that they were about how to access birth control or how to access safe abortions. And it's, and there's no mechanism in the law that's clear or that's actually like applicable in practice for people to challenge that censorship. And so what happens is people decide not to even post these things at all, which I think is perhaps more or just as dangerous as the laws themselves. I think one thing I'd add to this conversation, and I think you relate this out very well, is this notion that there's been an uptick in, uh, you know, these cases and these actions against, um, you know, uh, uh, charges being filed related to freedom of speech and, and blasphemy and things like that. And I think you also need to understand that um, a lot of this has happened in part over the past you know, year and a half now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, this is a time where uh, an immense amount of activity has shifted to the digital space. You know, the way that our lives run has, has changed completely. Um, and I think that that's been reflected in uh, some of these actions that these governments are taking. It's also been a time of instability in a lot of these countries, right? You see mass protest movements, in, obviously in, in Myanmar, in countries like Thailand, in Indonesia. Um, and like I said up front, uh, for a lot of these governments, sort of national unity and stability is, is the primary goal. And so when you have the context of the pandemic, you have the context of rising sort of uh, discontent for, for a variety of reasons, but rising discontent among people for, towards their governments, um, you can understand how uh, you know, the use of these laws becomes very attractive uh, to some of these countries. Another thing I'd add is that when we're talking about the sort of content that can get you in trouble, sometimes it's, 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 you know, they're not even necessarily legitimate, right? You know, there are cases where um, you have people being convicted over content that's falsified or, or edited in certain ways. And I would highlight, uh, you know, the very high profile case involving uh, the governor of Jakarta a few years ago was uh, convicted of blasphemy uh, because of a speech that he had delivered that was, uh, I believe, doctored in a certain way um, that, uh, you know, edited sort of the context of his remarks. And it was, what's fascinating is that not only was he charged with blasphemy, but I believe the person who, I'll need to fact check this, but I believe the person who edited and, and circulated the video himself was also, I think they were also criminally charged. And so there's this weird dual recognition that on the one hand, there was one person who did something wrong, 
uh, and sort of falsified content. On the other hand, uh, you know, the governor was still held accountable for it, even though it wasn't necessarily reflective of what he actually had said. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very dangerous environment. And I think here is right to say that, uh, you know, it creates this culture of self-censorship where people are, um, you know, hesitant to, to post content, they're hesitant to, to share what they want. And I think this also not only extends to the consumer level, but it also impacts how com companies operate in this space because they recognize that, um, you know, there's this culture of self-censorship and this is a very real issue that they'll have to deal with. And so when we're talking about, um, to what extent these companies can be competitive in Southeast Asia, you know, that's a real consideration that companies like Facebook, companies like Twitter have to make when they enter and engage in these markets is, uh, you know, the operating environment is complex and there will be challenges when it comes to freedom of expression. You know, uh, are these places, are these markets, uh, you know, the sort of places that these companies want to enter into? And so that's a real hard conversation. Yeah, the editing reminds me, um, I think it was last around um, winter time in the, I'm in the UK right now, and they had done a deep fake of the Queen's speech in which the Queen suddenly starts dancing on her desk in Buckingham Palace, kind of to raise awareness about the, the dangers of, um, of deep fake video. <laughs> People were quite offended in, in some cases. Um, but I just wanted to ask, right, so like in, again, right, like I'm, I'm in the UK, it's not in the U EU anymore, but a lot of like the European moves against these social media companies are taken through the EU mechanisms because they like see the value in a, in a coordinated approach. Um, obviously, ASEAN is a very different beast from the EU. Um, but I wonder, has there what what has ASEAN's role been in in terms of? I mean, if 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 at all, has has there been any kind of like attempt regionally um, to think about the problem of social media? I haven't seen anything specific. There might be uh, things that happen that I'm not aware of. I mean, ASEAN as an institution meets hundreds of times a year. Uh, they're they're well known for their capacity to to hold meetings in that respect. And so it, it's it's more than likely that there are ongoing conversations about this. But at the same time, you have to remember that ASEAN uh, is a consensus-based organization, and that any sort of action taken, you know, requires the consensus of all ten countries involved. When it comes to social media, I think while we can agree that most, if not all, the countries are, um, you know, in favor of some restrictions on the freedom of expression. Um, I don't necessarily think there's consensus between all the countries in terms of what that exactly should look like, right? And so when it comes to the, the questions that we're talking about right now, I don't know to what extent um, ASEAN would be able to sort of establish, a, you know, sort of a, a joint framework outside of, you know, very broad principles um, that I think are sort of mutually agreeable for everyone. Um, so I'm not necessarily... Um, there may be things going on that I'm not currently aware of, uh, but I think a lot of the activities that we're seeing are happening on a, on a country by country basis. One thing I'll add where I think ASEAN might play a role is on the issue of uh, sort of high level sort of standards related to data governance. Um, you know, when we have this conversation about uh, how companies uh, interact with local governments, you know, one of the key considerations is where data is stored, right? And what sort of um, you know, barriers are imposed on the free flow of data. 
And I think there may be ongoing conversations at the ASEAN level about sort of frameworks for, for data localization, data governance, all these really key issues. So I think at, at the high level, um, that's where ASEAN might play a role, but that's, that's not necessarily specifically related to sort of the freedom of expression issues we're talking about, but that's certainly, uh, you know, a core issue that underpins all the above and in some ways, uh, enables uh, governments to take some of the actions we've been talking about. If uh, you know, all of Facebook's data related to users in Myanmar are held in the country, which is a hypothetical, right? Like these are um, you know, institutions and structures that would uh, empower companies to, sorry, countries to uh, you know, make use of data in a way that would be not so great for, for these issues that we've been talking about. So I think that's one issue I'd like to highlight. Yeah, kind of going off of, of what you were talking about, the more kind of um, infrastructural level, you know, beyond just like the software of social media companies, but the actual infrastructure of um, these services and of, of um, the communications technology. Um, Andreika, you wrote an article about the ASEAN smart cities. Um, and, you know, in the Western context, we're really used to hearing about the Google Sidewalk Labs um, in Canada and how, how it all went wrong. Um, but obviously, you know, Alibaba is also pushing smart cities um, in Asia more generally. Um, so I wondered kind of, you know, two questions. One is there, is there a geopolitical component to the construction of um, certain like um, like telecommunications network? Like in the UK, for instance, it was very controversial when Huawei wanted to implement the 5G because of this like security implications for the US um, and because of like the threats to like the, um, the like security infrastructure if like a Chinese owned corporation um, established those communications. So just wondering kind of, is there a larger geopolitical question around this and sort of like, what is what is the conversation looking like in terms of like wider data collection um, and infrastructure? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think to your first point about sort of ASEAN smart cities. So this was, you know, these are longstanding developments, but I think they were sort of supercharged in 2018 under uh, the chairmanship, ASEAN chairmanship of Singapore. Uh, there was a big push to digitize. Uh, there was the establishment of the ASEAN Smart Cities Network. I think they named around 26 uh, pilot cities where there would be sort of ongoing initiatives related to smart city development. And you can understand why. I mean, a lot of the, the impetus here is about sort of leapfrogging development, right? You know, harnessing digital technologies to enhance um, the operations of local governments, of civilian administration, um, and give really clear deliverables to, to people, right? And if you look at, you know, ASEAN has a great website that details all these projects and sort of what the priorities are. You know, the priorities are, are really uh, quite varied. You know, there are some cities that are prioritizing things like waste management and, um, you know, uh, the management of waterways. There are other cities in, in Southeast Asia that are focusing on uh, on monitoring traffic or some that are focusing on uh, things like uh, digitizing identity cards, right? And these are things that are pretty essential and, and could be quite beneficial to local populations. Um, and it's also a very important area of opportunity. I know that um, the United States government has been really active in this space. US private companies have been very active in this space. Um, 
the Indo-Pacific Business Forum that was held, I believe, last October, uh, you know, was, was a platform for, for U.S. private companies and, and Southeast Asian governments to, to engage on these issues. So it's a, it's a real, you know, area for opportunity. At the same time, there are risks associated, right? Um, you know, we've talked about all the ways in which the, you know, expansion of digital technologies in Southeast Asia has been, um, you know, risky in terms of freedom of expression. And I think the same applies to the digitization of essential services in these cities, not least also because of cybersecurity concerns, right? Uh, you know, one thing I'd say is that Southeast Asian governments are making the push to go digital, but their cybersecurity infrastructure in some cases is woefully inadequate. That highlight uh, countries like Indonesia where there are frequent uh, leaks of government data that, that you know, are quite serious. I think last, most recently, there was uh, data breaches associated with uh, one of the COVID-19 sort of the tracking apps uh, that uh, people in the country use, uh, you know, senior government officials having uh, their, their health data being breached. You know, these are very significant problems. And so uh, in some ways, you know, there's this push to digitize without proper consideration of, you know, the real hard security questions that you need to be asking. Um, on the second question about sort of uh, you know, the geopolitical aspect, I think that's exactly right. You know, you're seeing, like I highlighted, this is an area for international cooperation. Um, lots of different countries are getting involved in this space, the United States being one of them, China being one of them. Japan has had a, has had a really significant role as well, and also countries like Korea, right? And so that's a good thing. So that's sort of a net positive, uh, but it is cast in the context of you know, uh, emerging U.S.-China competition and also growing concerns about, um, you know, safety and security of uh, some of these Chinese-led systems. Now, I'm not an expert in this field, so I can't comment directly on, uh, you know, some of those concerns and, and the extent to which they're valid, but I would imagine, um, you know, if I was a, a defense planner in Manila and I was, uh, you know, mapping out hypotheticals in the event of conflict in the South China Sea. You know, one thing that would be in the back of my mind is, you know, what are the implications of, uh, you know, the real sort of deep integration of, of Chinese technologies into my telecommunication system? What, what might that mean in a hypothetical scenario of conflict, right? And so I think these are questions that, um, you know, I would hope never have to come to pass, but countries should be asking themselves. At the same time, it's understandable why some of these countries would be pursuing um, you know, some of these Chinese developed technologies, including sort of always 5G networks, in part because of their very competitive cost. Um, you know, these countries are looking to digitize quickly and ideally for the um, lowest price point possible. And so, you know, one thing you frequently hear when you talk to Southeast Asian governments about the choices that they're making when it comes to their hardware and sort of their the telecommunications infrastructure is, you know, they want options. Uh, they want to be able to make choices, but the field is such that their choices are limited. And so it, it's one thing to tell governments, you know, don't use Huawei. Um, it's another thing entirely to offer sort of um, you know, legitimate alternatives that are competitive. And so I think that's something that countries like the United States and also partners in Europe should be really thinking uh, quite seriously about. Thank you guys so much um, for those excellent remarks. Um, to wrap up our conversation, 
um, if you could give one recommendation to any institution, whether it be ASEAN or Indonesian government or Facebook, um, what would it be? Yeah, I'll go, um, I'll recommend to Facebook. And I think this actually builds off of a conversation we had in a previous episode of the Anti-Dystopians from last season, which is, I think there's a disconnect between Facebook's engineering team and how they're developing their product in Silicon Valley and how that ends up playing out in the countries. Um, and I think we previously gave the example of Facebook deciding to launch this new development of their software of like changing the algorithm or something right in Cambodia during the lead up of the Cambodian elections that um, a lot of analysts in Cambodia said had an impact to some degree um, on the election results or the way that, I mean, I think the Rohingya genocide is a classic example of the fact that Facebook didn't have the cultural competence or the language skills to know when certain genocidal phrases were being used online and sounding the alarm bells. And again, this delves into this huge conversation that I think we've had today about the responsibility of Facebook to have really a, a consciousness of how their product is impacting the cultures and the countries that they are in. The fact that there are not local offices, more local offices in Southeast Asia, despite the fact that four of its top 10 user bases or most populous user bases are in Southeast Asia is something that I think it needs to address. And I think that most tech companies need to do a better job of having local experts or at least local offices to advise the implementation of their products into, um, into these countries, especially given the way that these companies are changing the online and day-to-day -day landscapes of people. I could, I could talk about this topic all day, but I think if I have to limit myself to one recommendation, I think I would address mine to the United States government and just point out that there's a very real need for American leadership in this space. Um, I've been talking about the role that standards play uh, in sort of setting, uh, you know, the ground rules and, and the context for all these developments we've been talking about. And I think that there needs to be a real step up in terms of um, the extent to which the United States leads in standard setting related to communications technologies and sort of digital norms uh, worldwide. Uh, you know, I think one thing that you've seen, if we're going to talk about geopolitical components, um, you know, China has been very aggressive in terms of sending its experts to the global international standard setting organizations and being a real core part of that conversation. And I think, um, you know, I think President Biden has recognized that this is an area where the United States can step up. And I would hope that, um, you know, in years to come that uh, the United States takes back sort of its leadership role, because these decisions that are made at these organizations, these institutions will have a downstream impact on what happens uh, in sort of the cases that we've been talking about. I think one thing that I would also hope for is um, there have been increased chatter here in Washington about the prospects of a some sort of digital trade agreement between the United States and countries in, uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia specifically. That would be a really great tool to um, you know, help establish some of the norms and standards that would govern uh, a lot of the technologies we've been talking about. Um, you know, if you look at models like the U.S.-Japan digital trade agreement, um, the digital trade components in the U.S.-MCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, um, you know, there are uh, 
conversations about things like data localization and, and the storage of data and the free flow of information. And you know, there's a direct link between those issues and some of the freedom of expression issues that we've been talking about today. So I'd highlight that. And I think the last point I'd make, um, maybe more specific, I, I said I would limit myself to one recommendation. I'm sorry, I, I expanded beyond that. I think to social media companies um, is, is, you know, in terms of like communication strategy, right? Because the fact is that this is an ongoing negotiation between these companies and uh, governments, right? And Kira has talked about um, sort of values and the extent to which conceptions of privacy and freedom of expression differ among these countries to, to what we might expect here in the United States. Um, but if there's one argument that I think every country can understand, it's uh, economics, right? And the fact is that these actions that these countries are taking, uh, you know, has a real impact on the business environment. Right. And like I said, companies that are hoping to enter into these markets, you know, these issues will be in the back of their mind. Right. And so if there is, there's a desire to bring in foreign capital, if there's a desire to open markets to the global economy, then, um, you know, countries will need to balance that against some of their more authoritarian impulses. Right. And so I would hope that, um, you know, social media companies in the region will be able to recognize this and, you know, have very frank conversations with these countries and say, you know, um, these activities are limiting our competitiveness. They're limiting um, sort of the opportunities that we can take and, you know, in turn limiting, uh, you know, the economic benefit that uh, digital technologies brings. So I think framing things in the context of, you know, yes, it's a human rights issue and that's very pressing, but there's also the economic side of the argument. So I think having a really holistic understanding of the impact of these government actions is, is pretty critical. Thanks so much again to Kira and Andreika for coming on this episode of the Anti-Dystopians. As usual, all of the articles or research mentioned in this episode will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. We will also be posting a link to the brand new Twitter page for the show on Twitter at Antidystopians. Please do follow, like, retweet, or share this podcast to help us get new followers. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.